0: Me a moment, please. Lord, please grant by the power of your Spirit that we may hear your word, know your heart and your will, and obey your commands. May the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So today's parable comes from what is called the Olivet Discourse by scholars. It's Matthew 24 and 25. And in this discourse, Jesus begins by describing the violent and traumatic end of the age. He also talks about the glory and salvation and judgment that will accompany his return. And then midway through chapter 24, The focus shifts from a description of the end of times to this theme of being ready for the end. Being ready despite the unpredictable timing of Jesus' return. And there are a series of images and parables around this theme of being ready. And each story portrays a coming of some sort Someone's coming and the consequences for those who should have been preparing for it. Should we just turn it off? I don't need it. I'm saying just turn the screen off right now for the projector off. Let me give you a couple examples of these stories that Jesus tells in the latter part of 24 and the beginning of 25. You've heard these before. The Son of Man will come like a thief in the night. The coming of the Son of Man will be like a thief in the night, coming when you do not expect him. And then immediately preceding our text, Jesus tells the parable of the wise virgins who brought extra oil, preparing for what turned out to be an unexpectedly long wait for the bridegroom and his party. So the context of our text tells us that this parable of the talents must be understood as part of Jesus' teaching about being ready for the return of the Lord. And throughout this series, we've asked of each parable, what is the implicit question Jesus answers with this parable? And this time, I'm going to suggest to you that the question Jesus is answering is how shall we live while we await the return of Jesus? How shall we then live while we wait? And I'm going to tell you right away what the main point is of the parable, and then I'm going to prove it to you, I hope. The main point is that we should live as servants committed to growing the assets of the master while he's away. We should live as servants committed to growing the assets of the master while we await his return. The story breaks down into three sections. There's the master's charge and departure in verse 14 and 15. And then there's the servant's actions while the master is gone, verses 16 through 18. And then we have the longest section, which is the master's return and the final reckoning with the servant's. And we'll look at what can be learned in each of these sections and then ask two final questions. What is faithful living in our time and what are the barriers to faithful living identified in this parable? So before we begin in verse 14 and 15, I have to clarify two terms. One is servants. You'll read servants throughout this this text and each time you read it, it should probably be understood as slaves. The Greek word doulos can mean servant, but slave is the first and dominant meaning. And you should probably understand these men like slaves to have had no other legal or practical option than to obey their master. They could not leave to find another employer if they didn't like the particularities of their job. I'll remind you that slavery in the ancient world was very different from our history in the Americas. Um, economic and political forces influenced slavery in the ancient world far more than race did. There were Roman freemen, Roman masters and Roman slaves, and there were Jewish freemen and Jewish masters and Jewish slaves. And there were African freemen and African masters and African slaves. Many slaves were actually educated and experienced people who had fallen into economic trouble or were sold into slavery as a result of some political conquest. See Matthew 18, actually, for an example of that. But I'll use the term servant throughout this passage, as the, the NIV and most translations do but understand that to be a euphemism for slave in the ancient sense. Secondly, a talent represents something in our language that it does not represent in this story. So we take talent to mean natural ability and skill, and Christians rightly understand those to be gifts from God entrusted to us by God. In fact, this use of the word talent comes from probably the 12th or, 12 or 1300s when this, the word gained these meanings of natural abilities and skills given by God. But the Greek word talenton refers to a unit of weight, roughly 65 to 80 pounds of weight. And when applied to gold or silver or copper, a talent was also a large unit of currency. The NIV interpretation of bags of gold gets the idea that this is a large hunk of currency he's talking about here. Now, as I mentioned, capable slaves often rose to positions of of great influence and responsibility in the ancient world, but this story is truly extravagant in the responsibility given to these servants. So a single denarius was the day wage of a laborer in Jesus' day. One talent, there are different estimates on this, but one talent is roughly the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. So 20 years of a day laborer's wage are roughly $700,000 if you take the average day laborer's wage today. So the servant entrusted with five talents would have been investing the equivalent of $3.5 million, assuming we're dealing in silver. If the talent referred to gold, it would have probably been 10 times more. So what do we learn then in verse 14 and 15, where the master entrusts his wealth to these servants? Well, first, And most importantly, the master knows his servants. He gives them what is appropriate, as the text says, according to their ability. And the principle is that God knows us as individuals. He knows us as individuals who differ in our capacities, our personalities, and our circumstances. And the variable allocation of his wealth was done for his purposes and his wisdom. Implicit in this unequal distribution of assets is the message spelled out in Luke 12, 48. To whom much has been entrusted, much will be required. Or from whom much has been entrusted, much will be required. The master knows his servants' capabilities and asks of them What he knows they can do. What about the servant's response? Well, the master's gone. Remember that implicit question, right? How shall we live as we await the return of Jesus? We said that being ready for the master, for the master's return, means being vigilant in some of these previous parables. It means paying attention because it will be unexpected. It means preparing for the coming. Bring that extra oil. It may be a while. Well, in this parable, it goes one step further, and it says it's more than just remaining vigilant. Being ready means actively working to grow the master's assets. This story extends that idea of readiness beyond preparation and waiting. To active and productive work, which the coming master will then see and approve. So, in verse 16, the first and second servants, servants went at once and put that money to work. They demonstrate an urgency and earnestness, and they demonstrate effort. They're purposeful, industrious, and intentional. Put another way, they didn't just drift into doubling their master's investment. They worked at it. And in that day, there were no simple investment options. You couldn't plunk $3.5 million into the stock market and see what happened. Right? To earn this kind of money in the ancient world would have meant buying productive assets and managing them to earn a profit. One might buy a field and rent it to farmers and then buy a business or invest in some trading enterprise or a herd of sheep. But it would require risk-taking and management and effort and ongoing labor to turn a profit like that. Think about how many new businesses fail and fold in the first years, right? It would require significant, devoted, long-term effort to the mission of growing the master's assets, And yet, that's not what the third servant did. The third servant shows by contrast that not all will embrace that mission, that charge from the master. He buries the money in the ground, hiding it so it wouldn't be lost, presumably. Note that this requires only the most minimal one-time effort. No ongoing management, just plunk it in the ground and forget it. Well, in verses 19 through 30, we have the reckoning. We have the master's return. And it says that after a long time, the master returned, which continues that emphasis in Jesus' teaching that we may not, we can't, we can't know when it's happening. We're gonna, it's going to come when it's unexpected, and it may be longer than we expect. Yet there will be a reckoning, there will be an accounting when he comes. And in verse 21, we see that faithfulness yields three rewards praise from the master, increased responsibility, and joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think these are the words most likely to be heard around Christian funerals and deathbeds because from the Lord this is high, high praise. Faithfulness is the character quality that's singled out by the master and I take that to reflect the loyalty and devotion of the servants or slaves looking out for the master's interest. This kind of relational approval from God meets the deepest need in our souls, doesn't it? And then he says, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Now, for some of you, increased responsibility may not seem like a reward, right? However, in the context of Jesus' teaching about the end of times, the connection with the joy of the master really comes to the front. And you can be sure that this increased responsibility in the consummated kingdom of God will bring with it glorious new delight. This new work is for our good and for God's glory. It's not going to feel like some kind of increased burden laid on us. Consider the comparison that the master makes. He says these servants were entrusted with millions of dollars, bags of gold. And the master says, you have done well with a little. Now I will entrust you with much. It suggests the untold wealth of this master. And by analogy, the riches of God. And then he says, come and share in your master's happiness. What a stunning thing for a master to say to a slave. These servants or slaves are invited to share in the joy and the abundance of the master in a way that breaks all the conventions of the master-slave relationship. This master's extravagant generosity is unlike anything Anyone has ever seen. But there's also judgment on the other side of the approval, right? So our third servant receives a judgment and a condemnation from the Master. Unfaithfulness yields condemnation and alienation from the Master. The relationship with the master is completely severed when the talent is taken from him and he's thrown outside into darkness. And I thought for a while about why he is called wicked and lazy. Is he wicked because he was afraid and he hid the talent because he was fearful? I don't think so. I think fundamentally he's considered wicked because he judged himself to be more righteous than the master. He thought the master was a hard man who exploited others for gain, who harvested where he had not sown, who gathered where he had not scattered seed, who took what was not his to take, who took perhaps more than he deserved. And he was afraid to lose the talent and he feared the master's response. But the story portrays him as grossly misjudging the character of the master. And that's proven by the master's extravagant generosity to the first two servants. For those, the good and faithful servants, right? Ultimately, this third servant clearly considered the master unworthy of his loyalty and obedience. He even blames the master, saying effectively, you're a mean, hard man, and I was afraid of you. So this is the best I could do under those circumstances. And though he failed to grow the asset, the master's condemnation is not so much about the poor outcome of his investment as it is the corrupt attitude of that servant's heart. And of course, he's lazy because he's oriented toward protecting himself and serving himself rather than his master. He's identified as a servant or a slave, he's obligated to do his duty. And his failure to do so betrays his attitude toward his master. The master's not worthy of his labor, therefore he will not do this work required to grow that asset. Once again, it's the heart attitude revealed in the outcome. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount comes to mind. He makes this point consistently. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The inside of the cup is what needs to be washed in order for the outside to be clean. Again and again we hear that in Jesus' teaching. So what's the main message of this parable? Live as servants of Committed to growing the assets of the master while we await his return. Growing his assets means a lot of different things, potentially. It's not a commercial transaction for us, right? With God. I think to us it means increasing his glory as we depend on him. Displaying his glory as we depend on him. It means enhancing his reputation as we tell of his salvation, of his deliverance. It means extending his influence as we share his love, or growing his kingdom as we work in his power. This parable is a call to faithful and active obedience and a warning against unfaithfulness. It anticipates a period of time during which faithful living is required, faithful stewardship is required, as well as a final accounting on the master's return. So I want to ask that question about barriers to faithful living. Because I think this illustrates at least one important and common error, and that is, holding a distorted view or a wrong perception of the master. For the last servant, the master is a hard man, it says. Perhaps exploitative or simply harsh, but certainly not a good man. And unfortunately, many of us have had men like that in our lives. Oftentimes our fathers or our brothers or our Grandfathers, and those images of an impossible-to-please father or grandfather or even husband can profoundly influence our view of God. As a result, some of us cannot imagine ever gaining his approval or actually ever hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. So like the wicked servant, we're tempted to act with fear and we protect ourselves from failure and go on to live puny lives. We're unable to step out in confidence and in faith. We hide from God and offer him only what we think is necessary rather than giving him freely our whole soul. So our son, Ben, gave me permission to tell this story about what we call his dark time. During his sophomore year at Grand Junction High School, he hit a rough patch. You may remember the series of suicides at the school that year. Ben was struggling personally to find his identity and searching for some evidence of the love of God in the world. He was really down about some of these kids he knew. And that fall, when we received an F warning in one of his classes, we asked him about it. He said, I don't get A's I'm not like Emmy and Andrew you just want me to get good grades to be like them he viewed us as taskmasters interested only in his performance he felt incapable of meeting those expectations he thought we had for him and so we tried to reset his perception of us. In truth, above all else, we just wanted him to develop a life and a heart oriented toward God so that his joy would be full, so that he would thrive and flourish. It didn't matter to us whether he got A's or he went to college or whatever. We loved him and we wanted him to flourish. We were fighting for him to see our heart not to see this distorted perception of who he thought we were. Can you see that we're for you, Ben? But he rebelled against us in his social life. He pitted us against his friends. He thought they were for him. We were against him. We were restricting him from finding his true life and happiness. He could not see our love for him through his distorted, suffering, adolescent lens. And we were using every tool in our parenting toolbox to try to break through, to try to show him our love, to try to get his attention. We wanted him to find security in our love and in God's love. And by the grace of God... Eventually, we won that battle. Today, Ben surely knows that we love him, and he knows that God loves him. And with the kind of love that permits him to live freely and fully and securely. And he does excel in school, but not because he sees us as demanding parents who have unreasonable expectations, but because he hard work in school is an extension of flourishing, for him in an environment of love, he's using his gifts. It took effort and time and patient love and suffering on our part to communicate that kind of love to our son. Can you imagine that God also works with each of his children to communicate that kind of love for them? To reset our image of him where we have a distorted view of what God expects of us. To show us his true heart of love that he wants us to see without the filters, without the, the lenses, without the distortion. Our perception of the master really drives our capacity to live faithfully. Our perception of our master drives our ability to live faithfully. So what does faithful living look like for us? Well, I think it, it must be said that to live as servants committed to growing the master's assets takes obedience and work. But talking about obedience and work with Christians is always dangerous because we're so quick to mix up effort and earning. And while God approves of and blesses our effort, He condemns earning through work. <clears throat> I think it, faithful living requires knowing the gospel. Because knowing the gospel is the cure for an earning mentality. We must remind ourselves daily that we live by grace. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God loved you and sought you, and by his power you were born again into a new life with God. Every good work that now proceeds from your life, through your efforts, is powered by the life of Christ in you. Faithful living requires knowing the master. God wants to cultivate a relationship with you, just as we did with our son. Only through this interactive relationship over time will we know him and really find security in his love. When we are born again of God, our position as sons and daughters of the king, is secure forever. We are heirs of God. Thus we are free to risk failure. We're free to work hard and rest in the arms of the master whether things look like they're going successfully or they're flopping. By whatever task is set before us, we can still rest, rest securely in the arms of the master. Because we are his children. Faithful living requires proceeding with humility. As a slave to righteousness, accept the work assigned by the master. Know that we can only work by the power of God in us through grace. I think it's important to remember also that God does not need our works of service now this isn't stated in the text but sometimes the text doesn't say everything that needs to be stated our God does not need our works of service the kingdom of God is not a help wanted situation right the kingdom of God is a hospital for sinners so God can and do or sorry, can and will do what he pleases. Christian service and obedient living must be seen as an opportunity to participate with God in his kingdom work for our own good and for his glory. The rewards of obedience far exceed the value of any work that we contribute to God's kingdom. Thus in many ways we really just work for our own good To hear well done good and faithful servant To enter into the joy of our master And finally I think we have to In order to live faithfully We have to proceed by faith Moment by moment That is, we have to trust that the Lord who bought you with a price will sustain you with grace to obey him in his kingdom. John Piper calls that that faith in future grace. And I really like that idea of future grace. He says that gratitude looks backward to grace received and feels thankful. And that is a good motive for obedience. But faith looks forward forward to grace promised in the future. And that, that feels hopeful, right? That there will be more grace in the future. And this is perhaps even a better motive for obedience. That the, that the God who loves us will continue to meet our needs through grace as we step forward in obedience. That there's more to come with God as we move forward in faith. In this way, obedience comes through trusting in God for more grace in the next moment and then the next moment. And in that way, it magnifies uh, the infinite resources of God's love and His power. Put another way, faith looks to the promise of God that says, I will be with you wherever you go. And adventures in obedience to step forward. Our master shall return. We don't know when, and it may be longer than expected. But being ready means living as servants, committing to growing. The assets he's entrusted to us. Increasing his glory, enhancing his reputation, extending his influence, growing his kingdom while we await his return. We're going to move right into the celebration of the table of the Lord.